I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm joined by Susan Kaiser-Greenland. Susan is an internationally recognized leader in teaching mindfulness and meditation to children, teens, and families. She played a foundational role in making mindfulness practices developmentally appropriate for young people and helped to pioneer activity-based mindfulness with her first book, The Mindful Child. Susan is also the co-founder of the Inner Kids Foundation, a not-for-profit organization that taught secular mindfulness in schools and community-based programs in the greater Los Angeles area from 2001 through 2009. Susan was on the clinical team of the Pediatric Pain Clinic at UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital, co-investigator on several UCLA research studies on the impact of mindfulness in education, and a collaborator on an investigation of mindful eating for children and caregivers. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Susan. Thank you, Sharon. It's an honor to be here with you. It's wonderful to see you. Now, as far as I remember, The Mindful Child was the first book, at least that came to my attention, about mindfulness in children. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I think so. I I mean, there had been one book, and unfortunately I don't remember it, from about 20 years before. Um, But as far as mindfulness in kids, yeah, it was the first. That's why I have a few gray hair now. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. So let's start by looking at your story. How did you first encounter meditation and what inspired you to focus your teaching on kids? Well, I was a lawyer. I I think you might remember that. I was a lawyer for 20 years. Um, And we were living in New York at the time. And I had a stressful job. I was pregnant with my second and I had a toddler at home. And my husband got very lousy diagnosis. And I... um, became obsessed with food. I felt that food was going to cure him. I felt that we were eating a lot of poisons. I did a lot of reading. And um, 
it's a it's a funny story, but to make it short, one day I was in the kitchen pulling out of the cupboards all of the different things that had processed food or sugar or this or that and throwing it away. And my husband came in and said, honey, I got a babysitter. We're going to go to the Zen Center to learn to meditate. And I said, I can't. I'm too busy throwing away all this food. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, oh, he has this health issue and, you know, I should go to support him. And he said, no, 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 you're we got to go because of you, because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it started. And Sharon, you will not be surprised. I got to the Zen Center. We had a 20-minute intro class. And I'm, like I said, I'm pretty pregnant at the time. My my husband and I go downstairs. We sit on the, on the Zafus and the Zabatons facing the white wall. And the bell rang. I last, lasted maybe two to three minutes. Mm-hmm. That was it. Mm-hmm. And I went tearing out of the room. It was the first time since he had had his diagnosis that I actually allowed myself to sit. Um, So that was it. (laughs) You know, it didn't go very well for me that time. But I don't know if I ever told you this in person. I know I've said it in different interviews and things, but you and your loving kindness tape, which was around that time, uh, it was a cassette tape. That's how much, (laughs) that's what we're talking about here as far as time. Uh, We moved out of the, I, I quit my job. We moved out of the city. We moved up to Garrison in Cold Spring, mm-hmm. New York, um, we had organic food flown in from Michigan because it was so hard to find. Wow. Uh, it was very hard to find organic meat. And um, and it was awful, by the way, the stuff that we were eating. It was, uh, but it was part of what we thought would make him better. And I thought, I then thought, I really have to start to figure out this meditation thing. And even though we were just in Garrison, which was pretty close to IMS, you know, by then I had an infant. It was just going on retreat was not, was just out of the question at that point. So your tapes, your tapes, Jack's um, Path with Heart tape. And I'm pretty sure Joseph had a tape then too, but I can't remember the exact tape I listened to. But it was those tapes lying in bed at night with a Walkman, you know, listening to those that got me practicing. What year was this approximately? That was, well, it was when Gabe was born, so it was about 1990, 1990, Mm -hmm. 91, yeah. Yeah, so by then, um, Joseph had written The Experience of Insight, and... That was it. So it was probably, yeah. 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 And it was five years. My first book, Loving Kindness, came out in 95. So it was... But I had a lot of tapes. You had the tapes, yeah. I had so many tapes, really, because... uh, the truth is, I in the beginning I was petrified about public speaking, and I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I was uh-huh. terrified, and uh, we were always teaching in those days in retreat format, and so there's a kind of schedule where there's one formal talk each evening. And the first retreat Joseph and I taught in this country was a month long retreat, which meant thirty talks at night. I couldn't do a single one. I was just terrified, and oh, people were going up to Joseph and yelling at him like. Why won't you let her speak? Why won't you let her have a voice? And he'd say, talk to her. You know, it's fine with me. But after some time, I thought, you know, there is that one topic, loving kindness, where there's a, a particular guided meditation. So if I'm giving a talk on that topic and my mind goes blank, which was my great terror that my mind would go blank, I can launch into the guided meditation. Maybe nobody would notice. Mm-hmm. So the only talk I ever gave was on loving kindness. So I have like piles of cassette tapes. On the one topic, so I'm sure you got one of them. They were fantastic. But I, I wonder, how did you get, oh, beyond the fear of public speaking? Um, basically what happened was that I continued on that process. Huh. 
only speaking about loving kindness. And then one day it occurred to me, you know, they're all kind of loving kindness talks because what a, people aren't sitting there waiting for me to impart my incredible expertise. They're just looking for connection. Yeah. And that that's that was my job was to connect mm-hmm. with whatever with them, you know, using the vehicle of whatever topic it was. And so they all became loving kindness talks in my mind. That's how I could do it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. In that blanking, that's something I have too. I think that's often from early childhood stuff that just blanking out and um did that ever go away? The fear of that? Or the actual occurrence of just I don't know that I ever had it. You know, oh, <laughs> oh you just had the fear of it. I, I see. The fear of it. <laughs> oh, I've had. I might it. have had it. I might have had it too. Yeah, but. yeah, I've had it. I'd just be in the middle of a conversation, and okay, I'm kind of lost that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the best feeling is okay. Here we are together. Yeah, you know, and that's all, the only thing that matters. So, yeah. I am wondering. Um, you know, we often say this is a very hard time for kids, or this is a hard time for all of us. A particularly hard time. Do you think it's harder in general? Obviously, people have their individual differences and family structure and so on. But do you think in general it's tougher for kids than it was for us? I do. I do. And even tougher for this generation of kids than mine are now 28 and 25. Mm -hmm. I think it's tougher even in the last 20, 25 years. Um, and there's studies that are coming out that are supporting that, you know, rise in anxiety. Um, a lot of that comes from, or there's pointers that a lot of it's coming from social media. Um, and then also just they're sponges for their parents' anxiety. Mm-hmm. I mean, parents with all the best of intentions are just, you know, flooding their children with their own anxiety by overscheduling them and not giving them enough time to just noodle around it with their thoughts and not understanding the science that actually just noodling around with your thoughts, letting it go is very good for the development of executive functioning. But we've got these kids so goal-directed. So yeah, I think it's very tough for them. What is it about social media that people, kids are using it particularly as, how old are kids like when they start? Oh, (laughs) kids are put on on their, on, um, tablets or on phones, like as young as four or even a little bit below as kind of babysitting devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what you th- if you think of how all of this, and there's, even in television, you know, they talk about the different ways that television is created now. It's made so that nothing is slow. You think of Mr. Rogers, it was all very slow. There was, you know, his neighborhood, he was taking off of his sweater and he was sitting <laughs> Oh, and tying his shoes. Now it's like one shiny object after another. And how that's affecting kids' attention, I don't know that the science is actually showing how it's affecting the attention yet, but I'm sure it will. And my educated guess is it can't be good. Um, But that creates this increased anxiety. And, um, you know, and then as the kids get older, what people are posting on social media about kids and other kids is uh, very stressful and hurtful, too. Well, I had a, a professor friend in one of my classes once who said, he raised his hand and he said that for his students in college, um, he found that their use of social media was just a constant exhibition of seeming perfection and then the resultant jealousy and everyone else, as he put it, he said, no one 
posts a photo of their mediocre meal. And I said, um, I think that's an age thing because, like, my people are, like, posting about their shoulder surgery or whatever, <laughs> you know, our aches and pains and yeah. illnesses and so on. But, um, you know, as an age thing, you know, as, as a kind of formative process where people spend quite a lot of time, um, it's also kind of poignant because the medium could be something to use for much greater connection. Yeah, I think it could be. And I think there are people trying to make that happen. But um, I don't think we're there yet. So what's happening, um, do you think, in terms of mindfulness in schools and, and people bringing, bringing those practices in? Um, it's also an interesting time there. I mean, it's exploded. It's come uh, along much further than any of us ever thought uh, could, was possible at the time as far as the buy-in for individuals. Um, but in a way, the, um, the, the, moti the motivation and the energy has moved the movement further and faster than the development of best practices and kind of um, development of controls is a little strong, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood has come around. And as a result, we're having we're seeing a little bit of a backlash and also a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. The same is true with some of the general science, mm -hmm. you know. And I think uh, our mutual friend Amishi has that great line: uh, "Mind the um, mindful hype, but also mind the anti-mindful hype." You know, we uh -huh. have to find something in between. But I am hopeful that this. Uh, this minor backlash or worry will actually get those in the movement together to start really paying attention to creating a, a good, solid sense of best practices. Well, some of the backlash comes from people associating mindfulness with Buddhism, right? And then seeing it as a religious practice or so-called religious practice. Yeah, there's a, there's a very um, targeted effort in that regard. Uh, towards that has started towards a few programs, and I've been involved in a number of conversations on that. Um, and I'm pleased to hear that some of the people in, who have been targets of that um, attack have been in conversation with the group that is upset. And so I think that that is a very good sign. Um, because, you know, Linda Lantieri said very early, early on, um, and she really knew schools uh, that we had to be careful about what we were bringing in because, for example, if somebody brought in a set of rosary beads, nobody would doubt that, that was a religious, uh, you know, I don't know what we would call a symbol, I guess. Uh, but we were bringing in or people were bringing in a lot of different things that were symbols or using Sanskrit words or that sort of thing. So it's um, I'm not worried. I, I do see that there is a backlash. I think that it's to be expected. I think it actually, if handled properly, is a very good thing because we need to start approaching mindfulness in the schools the same way we approach it, math, science, history, all of the other subjects. And we need to have people trained so that they don't just understand the activities where they get some really lovely um, anecdotal um, uh, 
feelings and, and, and stories out of the classroom. We need to have people trained so that they see what the purpose of the activity is, see what happens when you ring that bell, what are you trying to train, what do you expect? I mean, not to be surprised if somebody, when the minute they sit down and close their eyes, if they, like me in that Zen center, automatically get a lot of strong emotions and not to be afraid of that, but also know to then close that practice and move on to something else mm-hmm. and circle back to the child and say, hey, what was going on with you? It's not scary that these feelings come up. It's just important that the facilitators know how to contain them, how to contain the meditation circle and know to circle back and check in. Mm-hmm. And then there's such a great opportunity for good. Yeah, the um, guys from the Holistic Life Foundation. Yeah. Ali Upman and Andy um, told me this this great story, which was in my my most recent book, Real Love, uh, about a little girl who's maybe like, I'll say seven, I can't exactly remember, but let's say seven or eight, who was always getting into trouble for fighting. And she was very poor. Her clothes were kind of tattered. And the other kids would tease her a lot, but she would just like lash out and fight mm-hmm. back and couldn't like channel her reaction in, in some more useful way. And, uh, but they taught her. She was one of their students. And uh, they told me that they walked into, like, the gym one day. And she had this other little kid up against the wall holding her by her neck. <sighs> and then she said to her, you're just lucky I know how to meditate. And she dropped her. And she went off and sat in the corner and kind of, like, composed herself. And, which I love that story. That's you know? a like, powerful story. We just want options. That's all. You know, yeah. it's not saying teasing is right or bullying is right. But... We, we need some options and freedom and choice in how we respond. We need options and we need the adults in that system to when they see the child becoming defiant in that you know situation to recognize that as a nervous system reaction. It is just a way of it's too much. They're on overload. And to help them pull away and find ways to settle mm-hmm. because when we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, uh, the kids and the adults just don't have the bandwidth to be able to listen, learn, and be open to new mm-hmm. ideas. So when you think of all the teenagers we've seen with the arms crossed like this, looking down, and the immediate reaction from adults is, oh, that person is defiant. If we just reframe that to, oh, wow, it's a little too much for them, something they're a little bit overwhelmed, immediately the adult's heart opens with compassion Mm -hmm. as opposed to becoming oppositional. So that's why this has to start with the adults in the whole system, in in the school lunch line, in the the maintenance staff, in the teachers, in the the administration. Um, That's why we need to start with the adults and training them some real simple basics of nervous system, what happens with our nervous systems when we get a little bit overwrought, and then also these great universal themes about different ways of navigating conflict and problems and and sadness and joy. Now, that's fascinating. Do you know of programs that actually focus on the adults in that global kind of way, like the the adults in the lunch line and things like that? Well, different schools are starting to do different types of things. Uh, But in a perfect world... uh, a mindfulness program in a, syst- in a school should include the entire system, mm-hmm. which includes every element, which means parents, teachers, and staff. And that is starting to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, I once did a workshop where there was a whole group of the maintenance staff came in. Um, 
and talk about teaching, you know, a conscript group of mine. I mean, they did not yeah, want to be people, there. Yeah. <laughs> and then you had all these other people who were all bought in. And in these workshops, we break up into small groups and people come up with games and then they, and then they, um, they, what's that called? They, uh, they demonstrate the games and then they share. And, uh, this group of, of all men were not having any part of that. So I decided that what I would do is every time we broke in small groups, just work with them and only talk to them about nervous system regulation, quieting strategies. It's a full day long workshop, go through the whole day. And that idea of break up, talk about a theme, come back, share. And I did not expect this group to ever participate. The very last time when we come together, one of the guys got up to demonstrate. And I thought, okay, what is this going to be? And he got up and he said uh, he was going to demonstrate a gratitude walk, which is every time, for those who don't know, every time you take a step, you silently say to yourself something that you're grateful for. And so he got up and he said, the next time I have a fight with my wife, every time I take a step, I'm going to first say, I'm glad I have a wife. <laughs> and then he went on, you know, and it was just so beautiful. So if you just start with nervous system regulation that everyone can understand and then go from there, a lot can get done across the whole system. Well, it's so interesting because I'm, I'm also, um, I think I, I hear more about programs targeted to the kids and then the kids go home and they say their mom or somebody, you know, like, you seem really agitated. I think you need to learn how to breathe or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what's great about mindfulness with kids and families, right? There's this beautiful circle of co-teaching and co-learning. And the kids do bring it, at home, bring it home. So I know you have a new offering through Sounds True, which is geared specifically toward busy parents. Yeah, so. yeah. That was a lot of fun. It was the first time I had ever done a series of guided meditations. It's hard work, man. I did not realize yeah. it's kind of like writing a book. You have to prepare for it, and then it's a lot of work, but I enjoyed every minute of it. So tell us something about it. Like It is a program of 30 brief guided meditations intended for grown-ups, uh, based on that theory I was just talking about. The first part are, are a few practices on understanding the nervous system. And I talk about that as mindfulness first, because if we learn mindfulness, self-regulation, quieting strategies first, then we can be in a position to have the bandwidth to be open to new ideas. And then the remainder of the days are focused on various themes that help us look at the world in a little different way. Themes like letting go but not giving up. Themes like the backwards law. Sometimes the harder we try, the less likely we are to succeed. Uh, themes like how everything changes. Things, themes like the mind-body connection. What happens in our mind will change our body. What happens in our body changes our mind. And, um, and that's how the, the program's set up. And then I guess the other thing is at the end of every one of the guided meditations, there is a takeaway, like a line or two that the parent can then integrate into the daily life. Because I think, and that's a lot of your work has been with this too, with real love and with real happiness, finding ways for busy grown-ups to be able mm -hmm. to integrate this throughout their day without needing to beat themselves up because they're unable to go on a long retreat or sit cross-legged on a cushion for a period of time on a daily basis. So when you say nervous system, do you mean like vagal tone or is it? 
I do, but I'm not going that deeply into it. Uh, One, I'm not a scientist, and so I'm very careful not to make a mistake in that area. And two, I think if we can talk about things really, really simple, simply with the parents and with the kids, they can understand it better. And so I talk about the arousal curve, which is not... not a term I use when I'm working with teenagers, but I do work it with their, work, use it with their parents. And it's about how at the very top of that, when you have enough, enough nervous system energy, enough alertness to be, you know, alert and able to function well. Because a healthy stress, a little bit of stress is healthy, but not so much that it sends you over to one side mm-hmm. or the other. And one side is the fight or flight. Or the other side is the freezer, forget it. So we talk about that. And then we talk about very simple mindfulness-based strategies, things that maybe you're exhaling, focusing on your exhale, a light emphasis on the exhale tends to calm the nervous system, or anything where you're moving your attention away from what's on your mind, what you're thinking about, what you're worried about, to a neutral or pleasant present moment experience. Whether it's a word, it could be counting breaths, it could be a mantra, it could be a a picture in your head, like a visualization, it could be the feeling of each step, it could be the feeling of breathing, it could be the sounds bottoms of your feet against the floor. And that has a way of shifting, turning the tables on emotional hijack, that fabulous term that Daniel Goldman ter- uh, coined many, many years Did ago. The amygdala. Yes, yeah. yeah. So you, you kind of turn the tables on that. And then what happens is your bandwidth opens. And then you have the capacity to understand and to listen and to be open to new ideas. I say often that if I had known this 30 years ago as a young mom and wife, I would have saved all of us a whole lot of trouble because every time people were upset, I'd get in there and try to sort it out, you know, try to reason this through. You can't do that when your nervous Mm -hmm. system is on high alert and your bandwidth is narrow. So what happens in trauma? Trauma with respect to... The nervous system, you know, like, I mean, because there's a spectrum, obviously, you know, there's distress or there's... uh, even overwhelm, and then there's, you know, um, Shutting down. Yeah, yeah. really. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why, especially this work with kids and parents and, uh, and schools, we really have to pay close attention to training people well and brief periods frequently throughout the day. And when we are practicing, when we're leading a practice to include Make sure it includes some prompts for moving, mm-hmm. some prompts if you're uncomfortable, prompts about not white-knuckling it through, mm-hmm. and also, especially in the group setting, for really encouraging and almost insisting that people lead practices with their eyes open. Mm-hmm. The number of people who lead practices for children with their eyes closed, I find worrisome because the idea of this is that if your eyes are open, if you see a child or an adult, frankly, who a little restlessness is to be expected, but if some discomfort seems to be um, a little more than what you would expect it, or if you see tears coming or anything in a group setting with kids... It's time to cut that practice short Mm -hmm. and then contain it, acknowledge what happened, but don't get into a long discussion about it in the group. And then again, circle back and meet with the child or the adult directly and how's it going, what happened, and see if you can get support. So for the trauma piece of it, it's very important that the facilitators are well-trained, 
that they have had meditation experience themselves so that they're familiar. They're not afraid by emo when emotions come up, which is one thing we have with untrained facilitators. Or when they do see emotions come up, they're comfortable closing the practice without drawing attention to what's happening, acknowledging the feeling, and then containing the conversation so that at a different time people can come in, you can go in and check in with the person who's been, who seemed to be upset. That's also interesting, isn't it? Because it is a, a spectrum. It is like a continuum. Yeah. Um, and I've also, you know, occasionally gone into schools where, you know, quite some large proportion of the kids have a parent in jail. Or the kids themselves are on some kind of medication, like heavy medication. Or, um, you know, the the very system is so fraught with with tensions and stresses of of some kind, and yet those are sometimes the schools that are really promoting mindfulness and um, hopefully to to good effect. So that uh, I mean, part of the stress response um, or the whole stress network is that there's the stressor and there's our tendency towards flight, fight, or freeze. And then there is the resource with which we can meet the stress, which is why we see, you know, in ordinary situations, ordinary people, um, sometimes people just, you know, they don't seem to feel alone. They don't get isolated. They don't get embittered. They reach out to one another and they meet a terrible situation uh, in a better way than they might have had they fallen into those habits. Or or sometimes there's a seemingly objectively kind of small amount of stress. People fall apart because it's too triggering, it's too reminiscent, or they're exhausted to begin with, and yeah. they just don't have it to, to meet it. And so um, there's a lot to be said for that capacity inside. And starting when you're a child, you know, to to recognize that, that, you know, resilience is a is a truth, and that you can you can cultivate that. You can you can build that. Yeah, yeah. I think you're pointing to two very very important things. One is this idea of capacity, the development of capacity, and how and that's why it's important to teach these games or practices in a way that's fun and engaging for the kids when they're not upset so that they're familiar with them and then you pull them out as a way to help them as, uh, cope with difficult situations. But if you try to teach while somebody's in the midst of a difficult situation, it doesn't work so well. But the other thing you're pointing to that I think is extremely important as a field is this notion of each school has its own culture. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that the the for me, the most interesting and also the most powerful approach is not to try to take a mindfulness program that is kind of canned and, you know, put it, match it onto every school, but rather to really take the time, consider it like a three-year cycle to work from the school with the school internally with the goal that the outside consultant is becomes not at all needed. That's the best thing is when you're no longer needed and to train the resources within the school so that they can develop a program that is consistent with their culture. And one interesting thing, when you went back and talked about the the uh, challenge from 
uh, some religious groups against yoga and mindfulness in the schools. There was a big case out in California a few years back, and uh, the case was the school-based yoga mm-hmm. mindfulness program was upheld. And one of the factors that the court considered was that even though some of the outside providers were um, strongly, were was actually a Hindu organization, mm-hmm. the fact that the program, the original program came in with ideas from that organization, but then it was developed, redeveloped, and evolved by those within the school system. So it was an organic program that changed dramatically based on the culture within which it was being implemented. And that was a very important um, fact that the that the courts looked at to say that, okay, this is not an outside religious program coming in. So this idea of giving it the long haul, kind of the long view, and helping schools from the inside out figure out what makes sense for them, what makes sense in a school where there's so many kids who are coming in who are in traumatic, ongoing daily Mm -hmm. situations of one type is very different than other schools where those kids are suffering from trauma too, but it's of a different type. Well, that's really interesting because it seems that the temptation or the tendency even is to do something other than that, is to create a curriculum that can go everywhere. And it's kind of, it is that cookie cutter thing, like, um, because then you also don't need the highly trained consultant. You know, you have you have a formula and and you can just sort of slap it on. And, yeah, yeah, and that is how, how to scale things and people do like to scale. Um, you know, so anybody who knows me well knows that's something I've resisted from the very beginning. I think that this, the opportunity for transformation that this practice allows um, comes from that kind of uh, watchmaking work. You know, it's like building a watch. Uh, but I do think that these programs that are more, you know, manualized have their place and they're helpful and they're often a very good door opener. Um, so I think for like with everything, we need a little bit of both. Yeah, it's interesting. I have that discussion sometimes with friends um, who describe the need to scale something or other, and and I say, well, how do we know? You know, how do we know that that's the most effective way to create change? Yeah. You know, it's never been that way. Actually, it's been uh, a fewer people going deeper. Yeah, yeah. You and know. you certainly, I think, for this kind of practice, you do need people some group of people going deeper because we're looking at transformation. We're looking at system-wide transformation, and that's that's the hope. Uh, so we, we can't get impatient about how long it's going to take us to figure that out. But not everybody agrees with me. There's a lot of people who yeah. like the scaling idea. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, and, and none of them will be surprised to hear me say that this has been my approach because I have been consistent with this approach since the very beginning. I remember way back when, it was when the mindfulness in schools thing just started out and there was some um, event and Goldie was there and I was there and people were speaking. And Goldie said, and I love her to bits and she and I see each other like once a year or something we talk and she's been a great supporter of mine and I hopefully me of hers. And she said, I want to see mindfulness in every school. <laughs> and I said, well, I want to start really small. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was like, it's, it's good. You need both of those things. You know, I want to like build the watch that works beautifully. Yeah, yeah. 
Do you work with teenagers? Yeah, yeah. Tell me what that's like. It's so much fun. Yeah, it's so much fun because teenagers are more... um, Each... The younger people are often the less baggage there is, and so teenagers often are able to really just drop into experiences that are really quite... um, Meaningful. And also, I like with teenagers a lot of work with respect to connection, helping them to connect with one another, helping mm-hmm. them support one another, uh, things like council circles, that sort of thing. But again, where the facilitator really needs to be well-trained and have some significant mm-hmm. experience, not just in meditation, but also in group facilitation. But yeah, and teenagers, uh, I think it, I think teenagers who are interested in practicing, there's a wonderful opportunity there for early life um, exposure to these ideas and development of the capacities that you were talking about. I'm not a big believer in programs for teenagers that are not Mm opt-in. I think if teenagers aren't interested in practicing, that's okay. Just let them come when they're ready. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, and perhaps you, I'm not sure, Um, I'm of the generation where when we were in school, uh, you know, we, we would have these exercises where we'd duck under our desks yes. in case of nuclear bombs or something, <laughs> yes. as though that was going to be safe. Um, <laughs> but I think about kids, and, and most particularly now teenagers uh, these days, you know, with actual school shootings and uh, the dreadful, dreadful possibility of, you know, this not being an exercise, this being real, and um, and having even just the exercises of what to do in the event of an intruder or somebody coming in with a gun. and uh, Talk about anxiety, you know, and, and trauma and just just the sheer distress of that. Yeah, I was in a school during, and it wasn't an exercise. It turned out to be a false alarm, but it mm-hmm. wasn't an exercise. So I was in a school for a drop or for a lockdown. It's a remarkably long period of time in those classrooms while uh, you're locked down, while they're trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Um, Scary, scary stuff. And scary stuff for the parents on the outside, too. Oh, yeah, terrifying. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I realized until I actually had that experience how long it takes for them to really go through the school and check and make sure that it's safe for people to come out. It's a long time. Do you see that with kids um, who work with mindfulness that it, it leads to kind of a compassion for others. Yeah, yeah. I think it uh, it leads to a softening and more of an opening, and uh, and a lot. Of, that's why, again, you know, to move beyond the mindfulness based self regulation strategies, which is what a lot of school based programs are primarily interested in, in the development of executive function, to these uh, more thematic approaches about having an open mind, really teaching kids that we can't possibly ever know all the causes and conditions that lead to every moment. I think this is what you're writing about right now mm-hmm, in your book. Mm-hmm. But when you do, it's it's such a relief. And so then you can, you, you can be more open to your own um, mistakes and to others. And really fun little games like duck and rabbit, and you show kids a picture. Is it a duck? Is it a rabbit? The picture looks like either one. And then, well, if you say it's a duck... Is the person who says it's a rabbit right? Are they wrong? Or else show them a picture of a six, 
If you look at it from one angle, it's a six, and then there's somebody else you're looking at a nine. If you see it as a six, are you right or wrong? Well, no, it depends on where you're standing, what mm-hmm. you see. And those really simple perspective-taking games help people, really young people, understand that, you know, everything isn't always quite so black and white. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So when you were um, testing the kind of kit for Sounds True, yeah. Um, how did you test it? Did you get groups of busy parents together? And- I, I had a year before, because that's how those things go. So I had a year, and I did a year of teaching parent classes. And I've got to tell you, I had to completely change my program because I had taught parents before, but not focused on it. Uh So when I made the agreement with Sounds True, I thought, okay, I'm going to take my program for educators or for clinicians and just basically change it up for parents. And so then I started doing these classes for parents and realized, well, this isn't going to work at all because for parents where I found that they really need to start is Mm self-compassion. Because Teachers need to, need self-compassion, too. They're so hard on themselves. Uh, but for the parents, they're so personalizing what's happening with the kids, and they're taking personally the ups and downs as if they could do something differently. So really helping them to relax a little bit more, uh, trust themselves a little bit more, and just give themselves a break, and to convince them that taking some time for themselves is actually going to have a ripple effect to help the kids. Because if you just say, take care of yourself, they'll say, I'd be better off working to make some more money or taking my kids out to play. I mean, what is the benefit of me sitting alone, you know, in a room? But if you can reframe that to if you're a little less neurotic, if you're just a little less reactive, if you have a stronger capacity to handle what's coming up, that's going to actually be a benefit to your kids and it'll have a ripple effect. So really leading more with that. And uh, and then as a result, the program really changed quite dramatically from mm-hmm. what I had done with educators in the past. Maybe a lot of things should begin with self-compassion. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. 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 And you've been way ahead of the curve on that one in your work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's funny how a quality like that, which even now, though, you know, if one talks about it, it's so readily met with accusations of, oh, that's just being lazy or that's having no standards or... Self-involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, it just makes no logical sense because unless if we're able to be our best selves, then we're not, that we're not able to help the kids in the same way or help anybody in the same Mm -hmm. way. And there is a ripple effect when people see folks navigating the world in a different way, responding to stress in a different way, responding to to conflict in a different way. People around say, hey, something, something else is going on here. What is that? And we've seen that in schools too. We've seen schools where every single teacher did not want a program, but there was one teacher who did. And when that teacher started doing some of this work in the classroom, and they started, other people around started seeing changes, they'd look and say, what's going on here? Something different's happening. I want that in my classroom too. So it does have just our own inner work as it starts to change the way we relate to the world. Um, 
it changes. I remember you saying, I don't know if you remember this, but you and I were talking a few years ago, and you said to me, one change in the system will change everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of knew it intellectually, but after that conversation, I started to see it on a visceral level I, I really had never seen before. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, I also, you know, it's easy to be impatient because that one change may change everything in its own time, you know, and we, of course, would like to see it right away. I mean, there's so much suffering and, yeah. you know, of course, we, we have a sense of urgency, but the truth is it's going to happen in its own time and that we're just putting the pieces in place. We're doing the best we can and there's a lot of letting go there too. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, letting go, man. That's that's the big <laughs> lesson. Isn't it? <laughs> is indeed. Uh, would you like to lead us in a meditation before we we close? Yeah, no, thank you. I loved you, although it's a little bit intimidating, Sharon. <laughs> I'm sure people would much prefer hearing you lead the meditation. Nah, tired of me. But no, I, I don't think so. But but let's give it a try. I think what I would like to uh, emphasize in this practice is just how our minds are connected to our bodies and how our bodies are connected to our minds. So if you game, if you want to sit with your back relatively straight, your muscles relaxed, your heart open, and one way to open your heart a little bit, the feeling of opening your heart, just bringing your shoulders back a little bit. And then I'd like you to start with just three purposeful breaths. Breathing in, holding your breath for just a moment, and then breathing out again three times at your own pace. My shoulders have already dropped an inch or two. Okay, let's start with our attention and softly bring it to the crown of our head. And then let that attention move down from the crown of your head to your forehead, to your eyes and softening around your eyes a little bit, to your face area and cheeks and your ears and even the back of your head. to your mouth and your jaw, maybe soften around your mouth and jaw a little bit. Down to your neck and your shoulders, bringing that warm light of attention down to your upper arms, your lower arms, your hands, your chest again opening your heart, bringing your shoulders back a little bit if they've slumped. To your tummy, softening your tummy. To your upper legs, your knees, your lower legs, your feet and your toes. 
And with your attention down with your feet and your toes, just really feel your feet against the floor if you're sitting. And now we're just going to rest just for a minute or two in this wide open space of relaxed attention. And just whatever comes up, whatever thought, whatever sensation, whatever emotion comes up, just let yourself know that that's okay. And if you find yourself thinking, thinking about, is it okay? Isn't it okay? Really? Does she want me to think it's okay? Just know that that's okay too. But move your attention away from your thoughts into your body. Maybe just the bottoms of your feet against the floor. So for this last minute or two, if you start thinking, just know that that's okay. But what I'd like you to do is move your attention away from thoughts into your body. Your feet against the floor, your hands on your lap, the feeling of breathing. One last time, if you find yourself thinking that's okay, that's what minds do, whatever you're thinking, whatever it is, that's okay. Just in response, move your attention away from your thoughts into your body. The feeling of the movement of breath, your feet against the ground, your hands on your lap. And to close this practice as a bow to the wonderful Sharon who has taught (laughs) me and so many about loving kindness. If you can silently say to yourself some loving kindness phrases that make sense to you. Something like, may I be happy. May everybody around me be happy. And may the world become a happier and more peaceful place. Safer, more at ease, and more connected. So thank you, Sharon, for that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about Susan, you can visit her website at www.susankaisergreenland. That's S-U-S-A-N-K-A-I-S-E-R-G-R-E-E-N-L-A-N-D, susankaisergreenland.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, 
as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.